politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to guard our liberties to make sure we don't become like an Australian concentration camp. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house today, Friday, December 3rd. we got a lot of ground to cover uh, before our special guest, and we're having a special guest today to talk about the genocide in the hospitals that you can no longer deny, oh, Daniel, you can't call it Nazism. You can't call it this. You know, it's funny. Um, a, the media is obsessed with Lara Logan, that she basically insinuated that that Fauci is like, you know, what they did in, in Nuremberg. And when you hear Ralph Lariga's report on the cases he's dealing with in the hospitals, let me tell you, there will be no doubt in your mind that they are doing just what the Nazis did. And I will stand behind that. You look at what's going on in Australia, we are a step away from it. If we didn't have people like Ron DeSantis, the blue states, the feds would already be there. We are are already there, and there's nothing stopping us from going there. So here it is. We have an emergency where they're killing people in the hospital, blocking treatment, enhancing a virus every day with a leaky vaccine that kills more people than the virus, and... God knows what it does with all of the heart issues and everything. We'll get into that. And yet, the only emergency from the Republican Party is to fund every aspect of Biden's tyrannical government. All of it. Everything he's doing in every agency, in every department, most prominently the mandates. And COVID fascism and the clot shots. But also, the DOJ and everything they're doing. And the January 6th stuff. And the refugee resettlement has an extra $7 billion. Massive refugee resettlement. The worst ever. It's going to destroy our communities. Republicans signed off on that. Republicans signed off on that. Could you imagine that? Only 28 Senate Republicans voted no. So that means almost half of them even in the minority, even with a president this radical and unpopular, you know, it was, a, it was an easy no vote. Okay? Still, only 28 no's on something that easy. And then, of course, they gave up the filibuster. You know, Mike Lee was, was blocking it. Uh, Chip Roy was doing it in the House, but Republicans don't have control of the House. And Mike Lee was doing it in the Senate. So finally, the best he can get because GOP leaders didn't stand behind him and they were going to vote for cloture anyway and give Dems the vote. Because remember, Democrats have the House, they have the Senate, but they don't have 60 votes. So Republicans could have blocked this, but at least they forced an up or down vote on the mandate itself. And what happened was, so there, yeah, I mean, every Republican did vote against it. 40, it was 48 to 50 because two of them left town already. Um, not a single Democrat, including Cinema and Manchin in West Virginia, not a single one voted for it. And Republicans are so busy defending Cinema and Manchin. Oh, they're conservative Democrats. The only reason Joe Manchin is able to get away with a vote like that in a state like West Virginia is because the Republican governor is just as rabid into COVID Nazism and COVID genocide as Biden is, as the Democrats are, so he doesn't stick out. If you had a Ron DeSantis in the state like West Virginia, Joe Manchin couldn't do what he's doing, and if he did, he'd be defeated. But welcome to the Republican Party. And speaking of perfidy, of a fifth column at a party level, level at a cultural level, um, you know, the neo-Marxists, the social justice folks, they've taken over every establishment of every major religion. My religion, Catholicism, Mainline Protestantism fell a long time ago. But in recent years, they've taken over even evangelical establishments. There's a new film I want you guys to watch, Enemies Within the Church. Okay, If you go to enemieswithinthechurch.com, you can download the DVD. 
It's written by Kerry Gordon, directed by Judd Saul, and produced by my friend Trevor Loudon. It's extremely important in understanding how they were able to take over evangelical churches, make them more about jailbreak and refugees and and garbage and COVID fascism too, by the way, um, and not focusing on, on on the biblical values, what they really need to do. Uh, if we're ever going to take back the country, you got to take back the church. Um, very important. Go to enemieswithinthechurch.com. Order the DVD, get one for your pastor and everyone you know. Again, this is really, really important. Enemieswithinthechurch.com. So what's interesting is, you know, okay, so here they only have a tenuous minority filibuster-breaking or filibuster-proof minority in the Senate. Okay, Daniel, it's not really enough to fight, maybe. What if I told you a state like South Carolina— where they have the governorship and they have strong majorities in the state legislature. Well, South Carolina, that's got to be conservative, Daniel. South Carolina, to this day, if you notice, has not passed a single piece of legislation to deal with this. Okay, Alabama, Kansas, Iowa, West Virginia, Florida, Montana have done so. Tennessee and Tennessee, that's it. That's it. Okay, Ohio is in the process, maybe. Nothing happened in South Carolina. Uh, Senator Lee Bright, state senator from uh, South Carolina, he sent out a note that, unfortunately, the House leadership drove an agenda which prioritized protecting incumbents' jobs rather than protecting the jobs of our fellow South Carolinians. Basically, They're holding a session on redistricting. And what's more important than redistricting is the Fourth Reich, the genocide in the hospitals, the COVID fascism on every front, the clot shots. And, I mean, and then there's refugee resettlement. There's a lot of other things that need to be dealt with. So at Rules Committee, there was an effort to try to get them to take up a rules package that would enable them to consider other issues. And the Rules Committee Chairwoman, Ann Tayer, T-H-A-Y-E-R, apologized to the members of the committee because they had to take calls from their constituents. This is South Carolina. But again, what that tells you, the good news is, I'm telling you, when you're able to drive calls on a very specific ask, they hate it because it's effective. They know you're on to them. We're going to have these state legislatures coming into session all in a month. you got to join a team. We have terrific um, team leaders in South Carolina. If you want to join the team, go to conaction.network. Sign your name there. It will go automatically to the team leaders. They'll get in touch with you, and you could help out there. But this is where we are. You could have a situation where Republican, where Biden could literally – with federal funding, set up Australian-style concentration camps. They call it Howard Springs there. And you could have the very next day a budget deadline to fund that. And Republicans will not fight it. There is nothing the Democrats could do that will spawn an organic reaction from the Republicans unless we make them. If you think that simply voting in the midterms for a Republican Congress is going to make a difference... You've been asleep since 2010. So that's where we are with that. Now, I want to get to some of the genocide today, just some of the news. Um, There's this guy, Alan Friedman, that has a terrific piece out at Brownstone Institute, which is becoming a very uh, informative website, very important website. And the article is titled, Vaccine Mandates Unscientific, Divisive, and Enormously Costly. But the title doesn't really do justice to the point he makes. And uh, again, this is Alan Friedman. He's a professor of medicine at Indiana University School of Medicine. Um, His expertise is kidney disease. So he says that there's been 18,000 scientific papers published on the vaccines. But there's only two studies published last month in the New England Journal of Medicine that are fundamentally distinct from the other studies 
in that they are the only clinical trials yet reported to randomize adults to receive either Pfizer and Moderna. So there's two of these studies, one of each, and follow them over time. Follow them over time. So again, go to um, Alone, or is Alan, or yeah, Alan Friedman's article, Vaccine Mandates at Brownstone University, and he links to the New England Journal of Medicine uh, for Pfizer and Moderna, respectively. They randomized they had a randomized control study to follow up these people. Okay, so this this we're told is the gold standard. And what I've been saying over and over again, clearly there's a degree of leakiness. Okay, there's no question about it that it wanes, it throws suboptimal antibodies. Probably not not in everyone, not in everyone. Some get gets a complete bust. Um, and then it wanes. But it's not clear how much, if at all, there's ever much of a mortality benefit just on the efficacy side. Now, I'm not saying net mortality because it likely kills more people than even if it would save some, but I'm saying even in absolute terms, if you just focus just on the COVID efficacy side. And what he found was, unbelievably... If you look at the Moderna trial, there was one, over time, they followed them, one death from COVID in the vaccinated group and three in the unvaccinated group. And then in the Pfizer, it's one and two, respectively. So it would technically show something, but the numbers, there's no evidence. We never work off of numbers one, two, and three. That's preposterous. But more importantly, what he notes is this. If you look at the most relevant study endpoint is all-cause mortality, especially when you already know you're dealing with a very dangerous mechanism of action that kills a lot of people, it's no longer relevant. Is there no efficacy or a little temporary efficacy against death? That's a stupid question because it kills a bunch of people from the side effects. So you got to look at all-cause. And mind you, even if it's not all-cause, it kills more people. Even if, like... You know, let, let, let me just say this. You know, it would save 10,000 people from COVID maybe and then kill 3,000. Now, you already know Varys has 19,000 deaths and, you know, Steve Kirsch accurately estimates it's more like a few hundred thousand. But let's just, let's just make up numbers. 10 and 3. That sucks. We never approve something like that, especially when you have ways of preventing most of the 10,000 deaths there without losing the people with side effects because the other stuff we're pushing don't have side effects. But what he notes here is that when you look at all-cause mortality, he put together Pfizer and Moderna because their numbers are pretty similar. So the best is, and, and, and they're both mRNA, similar mode of action. Just put it together. And if you put the two together, 74,000 combined individuals Half placebo, half either Moderna or Pfizer. A lot, a lot of people. Okay? Six to seven month follow-up from the two studies. One was six months, one was seven months. 37 people died in the vaccinated group. 33 in the placebo. Straight up. That, that, that is, there, there's no gimmicks, no games. Straight up, that is the only one that purported to do that. Think about that for a moment. Get get that uh, thing, Alan Friedman, Brownstone Institute. You could you know find the New England Journal of Medicine studies. It's right there, right there. There is, it's slightly negative, and you could imagine over time when you deal with the long term effects. Okay, all cause mortality, and likely in my view, it's probably a mixture. It's probably a little bit of short-term efficacy with a few people on COVID. Remember, this is versus doing nothing, not versus taking the FLCC protocol. And then a degree of vaccine injury deaths that overpowers more than compensates for whatever benefit. That's likely what it shows. Now, COVID and COVID fascism and clot shots, kill shots, aren't the only way they're killing us. They're also killing us by letting out criminals. I'll hopefully have some articles out next week on this. Um, uh, another article in Indiana. It's unbelievable. 
the amount of people out on bail for serious crimes that were already let out for other serious crimes, like double bail break, jail break, and they go on to murder people. You absolutely need to utilize the Second Amendment while you have it. Utilizing it is not just buying a gun and ammo. You need an EDC tactical gun belt, and you need a holster if you're going to carry, and you need a proper one that properly balances comfort and security. So you could have that proper five-point draw, and, and it sits properly on your hip. We the People Holsters are long-term sponsor. They have you covered. Go to wethepeopleholsters.com slash CR. While you're there, check out their premium printed hoodies, their long sleeve t-shirts. Get an EDC tactile gun belt. Comes paired with their patented Cobra buckle. Every holster gun belt come with a lifetime guarantee. Uh, go to wethepeopleholsters.com slash CR. If you put an offer code CR at checkout, get an extra 10 bucks off. So it's really the cheapest custom-made American holsters around. wethepeopleholsters.com slash CR. Never let that perfect firearm go without the perfect holster. So folks... What are some of these mysterious deaths? So what's starting to happen now is that the magnitude of the cardiac deaths are so big, they can no longer deny it. So they're going to try to jujitsu it into something else. Many of you might have seen the UK Evening Standard uh, wrote that up to 300,000 people facing heart-related illness due to post-pandemic stress disorder, warns physicians. 300,000 cardiac illness. But they say it's due to stress. They're stressed out about COVID. Post-COVID, post-pandemic stress disorder. Well, certainly it's not very healthy to panic porn your entire population. I agree with that. But then they need to stop doing that. But there's a little bit of a problem with that. You see, we already have data that it's not just any cardiac problem. See, if it's stress, it would be the whole population across the board, and then likely it would be more weighted towards people more prone to get cardiac arrest, arrest, which is the older you get. But the problem is, as we well know, it is so weighted towards young people, male, young males, and really young male athletes. Well, if you want to look this up, it's in plain English. The UK Health Security Agency has a report out November 29th titled Myocarditis and Pericarditis After COVID-19 Vaccination Guidance for Healthcare Professionals. They say right there, myocarditis, significant left ventricular uh, ventricular fibrosis right that's the hardening of the of the muscle has been described in a high percentage of children admitted to hospital with a small percentage of these having non-sustained ventricular um tachycardia vt i don't know honestly it's beyond me i don't know what that is but Wait a minute, so it's stress. But then why is it myocarditis if it's stress? And why is it a high percentage of children? Hmm. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right at all. We already know that theirs has 1,200 heart problems, 500 of them under the age of 30. That makes no sense. It, that, that has never happened in human history where you have that many young people having heart problems. That's not from stress because it wouldn't be weighted towards younger people. And and why the athletes? So, um, you know, maybe we'll get him back on the show one of these days, but Peter McCullough, who's the you know preeminent cardiologist, he gave a quote to trial site and he said the following, I'm concerned that athletes are having subclinical myocarditis in the weeks to months after vaccination and are pushing through the symptoms given the incentives of sports contracts and we know a consequence of strenuous exertion in the setting of myocarditis is cardiac death. So in other words, his point is that, you know, it's young males are, are uh, at risk and obviously um, athletes are at risk of aggravating it more than anyone else because of the exertion, 
um, you know, exercise is the ultimate inflammation. It's generally a good inflammation, but you're inflaming, um, you know, usually not the wrong things, but if you already have heart inflammation, it's going to cause you problems. And his point is that's number one. And then as a foundation, then number two is they're going to be a little bit more inclined to power through the first warning signals just because that's what they do with every element. They don't want to, you know, they have a competition, they have a game, they don't want to be weighed down, and they're just going to toughen it out, and then that's going to run the risk of really aggravating things worse. Hence why we're seeing, you know, a record number of players, soccer players, collapsing on the field. And that that's really one of the most compelling safety signals that we've seen. So, dude, it's gotten the problems written all over it. They have nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. But I do want to get to the next segment here, um, getting back to uh, the genocide with the hospitals. So, as promised, we have today the great attorney, Ralph Lariga, uh, with us. I know I've done a lot of shows on treatment, early treatment, the problem in the hospitals, ivermectin, and there's so many other things to talk about, and I'm, I'm, I'm really backlogged, but I, I cannot get off this issue. I am literally traumatized by this issue and will be for the rest of my life. It is something for which we've never lived through, ever, where you have a government and a healthcare system that has access to life-saving treatment. And not only don't they use it, not only don't they not only do they use things, everything they use has either an FDA black box warning or in the case of remdesivir it's worse than that. Uh, it's not even approved so it can't have a black box warning and it's killing so many people, but they prevent family members often from even being in the room and then from administering with their own prescription from their own doctor life-saving treatment that it just, I mean, there's literally nothing wrong with it, literally can't do anything to you, doesn't do anything to anyone, doesn't cause side effects, and the stuff they're using causes the most side effects in the world. Um, I cannot go on be, beyond that. But but then the problem is, you know, I almost wish ivermectin didn't work. I, I'd be more at peace with it. But what rips my heart apart is sometimes when you see the cases where it does work even in the late stage, even when someone's been on a ventilator for several weeks with no hope, and then it cuts your heart out because you think, oh my gosh, I forget the exact number, but I, I think according to CDC, there's something like 13,000, 14,000 people currently in the ICU, and that number is going to go up over the next two months. What percentage of those people could walk out of the hospital just like those people who got a favorable ruling in court uh, thanks to the help of Lariga's, uh, you know, law practice. So I wanted to get a little bit of an update today. Uh, Ralph has been an attorney for four decades, uh, obviously not dealing with issues like this, but he took up the mantle where no one else would. Um, we certainly appreciate it. Ralph, thanks so much for joining us on your busy schedule today. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. All right, so I want to start with uh, just some of the live cases you've had recently since we we spoke last. Um, I want to go with the successes and then kind of go to some of the challenges. Uh, a lot of people by now have seen the case of the Ng family. That was the individual, uh, the 71-year-old who came from Hong Kong to visit his children, grandkids in Illinois, um, was on a ventilator for a few weeks, and you got a favorable ruling, and now he is home was turned around. Um, the media is now saying it's not true. He was getting better anyway. Could you could you speak about the details of that case? Well, in that case, it, it, that amazes me. The fight that was in that hospital. Now, I've I've fought the Selmhurst Hospital before. The same attorney represented on three different cases that we were successful on. But in this situation, um, Mr. Eng clearly was. Uh, in a terrible situation. He was, before we were able to get him the ivermectin, he was 17 days on a ventilator. When you're his age on a ventilator for that length of time, statistically, your chances of survival drop to like below 20%. So he was not in good shape. He was in bad shape. Um, his daughter uh, certainly attested to that. His daughter actually 
went into the hospital after the hospital said, you know, maybe he's getting better, talked to the doctor that actually was taking care of him day to day. And she said there was no change, no change, that he was in critical condition. The nurse, the ICU nurse, told the daughter that you should consider hospice, let him die naturally, not with the ventilator. Those are the kinds of things the hospital was telling the family uh, about Mr. Ng. And we were successful in being able to get a court order. And five days, on the sixth day after receiving ivermectin, um, he was off the ventilator. And today he's home. He's alive. And he would tell you and his family would certainly tell you he's alive because of that court order, because of the ivermectin. Now, isn't it true that the hospital is still appealing it and and yelping about pseudoscience with ivermectin, meaning like they're not happy about this? That's right. So this is the same situation I had with the fight case against Elmhurst Hospital. So when I won that case, um, the hospital refused to provide the ivermectin. I had to bring a contempt motion against the hospital. They brought a motion to set aside the judge's verdict. They lost. We won. Um, but it took that woman was on a ventilator for over 20 days. It took um, 20 days in a row of ivermectin to bring that lady out of that hospital to get her off that vent. But that lady survives today. She's home today. This is a woman who was told who, who again, the family was told to say their goodbyes. She's alive because of that ivermectin. And the hospital appealed in that case, even though she was out of the hospital. When that happens, the case is technically moot. And so the appellate division in that case wrote a 14 page decision, basically coming to the conclusion that the case was moot. We were successful. The hospital was not. And the same lawyers are doing the same thing in the Ng case. We've put in the same answer She's, that Mr. Ng is now out of the hospital. He's alive and the case is over with. Wait, so let, let me just get this straight. You're telling me they're appealing it almost ex post facto after they're already at home and better because they want to make sure no one else uh, suffers the same result. Well, they, they want to make sure that no one else benefits from a court order. They are so arrogant. A lot of these hospital administrators are so arrogant. It's only their protocol, only their standard of care. They are the only experts. They will not for some reason, open their eyes to the successes around the world. And even in our country, the successes in hospitals like the United Methodist Hospital in Houston, Texas, which has a four or five percent mortality rate compared to a national 20 percent mortality rate, because in that hospital, uh, Dr. Valone uses ivermectin in the full math plus protocol. Yep, and and certainly there's a lot of people clamoring to go there, and and it's it's tough because there aren't uh, enough uh, enough slots there. Doctor Verona is a great record, and and again we're talking about late stage. I mean, I I'm not the type. Look, as literally as I'm talking to you, I'm getting an email from a listener that you know took ivermectin to oxide, and he and his wife they're about sixty, barely had any symptoms, never had their blood oxygen level drop. But, you know, I'm not going to be like the other side where they say, oh, it would have been worse without the vaccine. It's hard to prove that in an individual case. You need a bunch of cases, uh, you know, you know, uh, randomized controlled trials. But when you're talking about someone on a ventilator for weeks and they suddenly turn around right when you give them the ivermectin, I mean, come on, that's that's ridiculous. And I think they know it. But this is a happy story, a happy ending in the in case. Um Someone sent me, a friend of mine in the Pennsylvania legislature sent me a case uh, that I presume you're working on in York, Pennsylvania, right up I-83 from me, um, where uh, the Smith family is a 52-year-old Keith Smith. He's been on a ventilator for a few weeks since uh, about November November 21st. 21st, yeah. yeah. Could you talk to me a little bit about that case? So – I'm still waiting for the decision from the court. Um, I, I believe the judge, you know, he intensely looked at this case. I believe um, he understood our arguments. And, I, you know, my read of it was that he was going to come down on our side. We haven't gotten the decision yet. I'm a little surprised about that. 
But um, again, when you're on a ventilator since November 21st and you're, what the hospital's done has not cured you, the hospitals just simply then take a wait and see attitude. They treat what's going on day to day, but they're not actively treating the problem that's affecting your lungs, how that vent is affecting your lungs. They have no medication for it. And I see it in the ICU doctor's affidavits. They actually admit that what they're doing is they're treating around the situation, but they don't have something specific for what's going on. And yet ivermectin has proven to be that remedy. Wow. And, and I'm assuming it's many other things as well. I mean, we had Dr. Paul Merrick on talking about all the things that his hospital was banning. There was a whole litany of them. Um, and, and one of them is the high-dose steroids. So you could have someone that literally they will die if you don't up your game, if you don't, if you don't introduce something different, and they're still there with only the six milligrams of dexamethasone, which is like a homeopathic dose. So are you finding that it's, it's not just ivermectin, but in the realm of other things, they refuse to try other things? Or, or, or legally, do you only deal with the ivermectin cases? Most of my cases are the ivermectin cases, but it's what they're dealing with. What they lock themselves into is what they believe, you know, what the FDA, um, the CDC, the NIH, the WHO. I hear those letters all the time against me when the truth of the matter is that on the NIH website, I'm sure you're aware uh, that table 2E, which is the characteristics of antiviral agents that are approved or under evaluation for the treatment of COVID, while remdesivir is number one, ivermectin is in fact number two. And when I always hear the other, the other argument they make is, oh, the dosage that we want is toxic. Well, right on that chart, the dosage is exactly the dosage that we always recommend, somewhere between 0.2 to 0.6 milligrams per kilogram. It's right there on the NIH chart. When they talk about the toxicity of ivermectin, right on the WHO, you can go there and find the adverse effects of any drug. When you compare remdesivir to ivermectin, in less than two years, remdesivir has over 7,400 adverse events that are reported, 560 deaths, 945 cardiac events, um, dozens and dozens of kidney and renal failure. When you look at ivermectin in 30 years, 30, it has 5,400 adverse effects, zero deaths, zero. When you go to the CDC and you see that the CDC recommends ivermectin to every refugee that comes into this country, so they're recommending it not necessarily for COVID, but they're recommending it on the basis that it's safe without any medical sure. uh, attention. The CDC recommends every single refugee coming in take ivermectin. So ivermectin is safe. There's no question it's safe. It's safer than aspirin. We have 65 studies with four, over 47,000 patients, um, over 600 scientists that have studied ivermectin and show its efficacy, yet you look at remdesivir with the small number of studies, 1,063 patients, and yet it happens to be the protocol, but it's a prescription drug that they charge over $3,000 a shot for, and the government actually pays a 20% incentive for hospitals to use remdesivir. It, It is all upside down. So do judges see that juxtaposition? So there's one thing you could say, look, I don't know ivermectin. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. But typically a judge, when you look, especially like in a criminal case, you're looking at behavior, a behavioral pattern. So similarly here, you look at a pattern. Okay, wow, you guys are really careful. You really, I mean, only want to use stuff that's that's just airtight. And then you take, I mean, do you bring it up that the stuff that they use on the face of it the NIH flags for liver toxicity, renal failure, um, barcinitabib, um, the other drug they use, has a FDA black box warning for blood clotting, right. which is what you're trying to treat. Like, does that, does that come up in court? Certainly, because when we get deep into it, um, then I'm cross-examining ICU doctors who will uh, claim that there's potential toxicity with ivermectin. Yet, they're not aware of looking at that WHO 
um, report on the adverse effects compared to remdesivir. You know, they'll back down to some degree when I show it to them and things like that. Um, But all they're doing, here's my take on it. Our doctors, certainly they're good people, but our doctors are busy practitioners. They are not research people. They do not do the research. They're willing to simply accept the research that's handed to them or that the administration has told them they will accept. And they go on that basis. So I've had doctors privately say to my clients, you know, I can't do it. I, I, they won't let me do it. Um, but the official position is that these hospitals, uh, their protocol doesn't include ivermectin, even in the face of it, even in the face of the successes, even in the face of 20 countries, you know, using ivermectin as their you know, prime attack against COVID we somehow turn our back to it. I mean, as I told you, the Bangladesh um, situation is so telling. So in Bangladesh, a poor third world country that ivermectin's in every household because of its anti-parasitic properties, Bangladesh with half our population, 160 million people has less than 30,000 COVID deaths. We have twice the population and 25 times the number of deaths in the richest country in the world and supposedly the most medically advanced. Yet we still, the hospitals turn their back to this. And, and by the way, it's interesting. Last night, I finally researched Indonesia because uh, Dr. Corey was telling me they're, they're totally killing it there with, with ivermectin. And it, it stuck out to me every place that begins using ivermectin um, you know, when they're in the middle of a curve, and this happened in Japan, it happened in Uttar Pradesh. So it always, what, co- what goes up comes down. It always does. It's called the Gompertz curve. But the curve is sharper and quicker and more. And so three things. It goes down quicker. It goes down sharper earlier. And then when I say go down, it goes, it flatlines. It goes to essentially zero afterwards rather than like in America, even in Florida, which has, you know, herd immunity, a lot of herd immunity. They got hit very bad. So, t- so then you're going to get a period where it's low. It's low, but it's not, you know, it's not at the bottom. And we've never achieved that anywhere in America since the beginning of this. Um, and you're finding that in all these countries. So, so the science is pretty clear. But my question to you is on – so a lot of times they'll be standing. They'll say a hospital could do what they want. Have you ever brought up the following argument that whether we agree or disagree – Hospitals are regulated like anything. Um, the federal courts are saying now, certainly at a lower court level, based on the Bostock decision, that um, hospitals must not just make available, but they themselves must perform chemical castrations for people who think that they're, you know, a different gender or something. Um, you know, dis- even though it's against their own medical um, judgment and religious conscience, a Catholic hospital would have to do that as well. Um, but yet somehow here they're like, hey, you know, it's a, it's a private hospital. You don't like it. Go elsewhere. That's the argument that the hospitals use. Um, they constantly you know, want to use the argument that this is our standard of care. Yet these people can't go elsewhere. Obviously, they're prisoners in the hospital yes. once they're on a vent. It would be medically dangerous to move somebody under those circumstances. Um, they don't seem to care. They say, well, if you don't like it here, go somewhere else when you can't go somewhere else. That's where judges come in. And most of the judges I have been in front of have seen it um, and have ordered either the hospitals to give the ivermectin or more these days, allowing another doctor to come in and actually uh, administer the ivermectin. So uh, before, before you go, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't get to the Texas case with this sheriff's deputy in Tarrant County, another Smith family. Erin uh, Smith, the wife, is fighting for her husband, been on a ventilator for quite a while there. And um, I had Dr. Mary Bowden, the doctor who was involved in this case, and I wanted to get you from the legal perspective is it true that they covered the feeding tube so the wife couldn't administer it? That's certainly what I was told. Um, that what they said at one point was that the they took out the feeding tube. That doesn't appear to be the case. What appears to be the case is they covered it. Um, 
hospitals, look, I have, I hear all the time from clients how curt and how uh, hospitals treat these people, especially once they ask for something like ivermectin. They ask for something different. Every, if you challenge the doctors or the hospital, the pushback is fairly immense in a lot of situations. It intimidates some people about even bringing the lawsuit and saving the life of their loved one because they're concerned about how the hospital would treat the person. Um, I don't think the hospital is going to commit malpractice uh, if you bring a lawsuit, certainly. But in terms of being nice to the individual or, or answering their questions or those kinds of things, I've certainly seen where hospitals have turned their back on um, the loved ones of the patient and, you know, not answered questions, not been uh, uh, helpful to people. It is a terrible situation that you don't let a loved one into the hospital. I've had a lot of people who have told me they can't get in to see their loved one even. Um, people with dementia who are in hospitals for periods of time all alone suffer greatly. You need to have that contact of somebody that you're close to and care for you. Uh, but hospitals don't allow it. So, and- so I was going to ask you about that because the precursor to the ivermectin issues and the treatment issues is that first barrier where a lot of hospitals aren't allowing a, a spouse to visit even if they test negative. Right. And and so therefore you can't even get in to know what's going on. And, and certainly if you need to last ditch effort, you know, uh, sneak the drugs in yourself depending on what um, – you know, what's the situation with the, with the trach, the feed and the feeding tube? Uh, you know, if it's feasible, uh, you can't even do anything if you want. Um, is there any possible cause of action to go against that, or do we just need legislation in the legislatures? The problem is many, many um, states, the governors have given total immunity to the hospitals with regard to COVID situations. So, I have had many people call and say to me that the hospital has killed my loved one and they want to do something about it. Now, I'm not a malpractice lawyer. That's not what I've done in my decades of practice. I refer them to try to get somebody who's uh, capable. But for the most part, that would be an uphill battle. I mean, I've had people go as far as have autopsies performed after their loved one passed away in hospitals. Um, because they want to do litigation. They want to continue the litigation. It's, it's difficult. It's an uphill battle. And I think the hospitals are well aware of their insulation. They're mm. well aware of it. And it emboldens them, unfortunately. You know, especially with a not-for-profit, I mean, one of my ideas is to go after their not-for-profit status. They can't have it both ways and always like they like they like to do these days. Um, so you're saying it's not just the fact that it's a tough standard to prove um, some sort of willful negligence or, you know, criminal negligence. Uh, certainly if they say they're just following the government's protocol, even the go- even though the government's protocol is criminal, but you're saying that some governors have explicitly exempted them from liability. That's that's true in New York. It's true in a number of states that they have wow. no liability with regard to COVID. That so is very. Yeah, there's there's a lot of things that work against us. That fact that there's no liability, the fact that they're financially incentivized to put you on a vent, you know, the fact that they're financially incentivized to give you remdesivir, a drug which is extremely dangerous, in my opinion, Um there's a lot of politics and there's a lot of the bottom line, the financial aspect that we're fighting against here. Now, in the back to the Texas case, so you won at the district level, but then they appealed it and, and the hospital appears to have won that. Um, yes. Could you update us on the status of that? Is that headed to the Supreme Court? And, and doesn't Texas have a more particularized state-level right-to-try bill that should apply here? Well, I have the right-to-try bills of every state that has a right-to-try bill. And when you look at them, I argued it in the Pennsylvania case we just talked about. So I argue it wherever it's applicable. But if you look at these right-to-try bills, first of all, they were put together generally 
four, five, six years ago, and they were mostly about experimental drugs for treatment of cancer. And what you also see, even though I believe the intent is the same, what you also see is how strong the hospital lobbies are, because in the great majority of those bills, hospitals are still exempt from having to uh, administer medication that they don't wish to administer, which, which the bills say that you, you obviously can choose a place that will administer it. Well, again, when you're on a ventilator, mm. you don't have the luxury of choice. So I argue the right, um, the right to try, mostly from the point of view that it's public policy to give people a right to live and a right to be involved in their own medication, a right to be involved in how their body is treated. And that's what the basis of those bills all say. And that's the argument that I make. So basically, we're up against this paradox that they're able to approve any experimental thing, kind of like in the, in the in the theory in the, in the spirit of right to try right the emergency use authorization man we got to use remdesivir we got to use the shots even though you know nothing makes sense on the safety and efficacy data and 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 we're, and we're literally violating everything but then when it comes to ivermectin isn't it true that we're we're harmed from a legal standpoint because they're like oh no that's fully approved ivermectin's a fully approved right. drug so it's not right. covered by right to try. I, I've, I've heard that argument. Look, to me, this is about two things. This, to me, this is about, you know, when you take us back a year or so ago and they wanted the vaccine approved, um, Big Pharma was fighting against ivermectin because obviously the vaccine couldn't be approved on an emergency basis if there was a reasonable alternative. They never wanted ivermectin to be that reasonable alternative. When you look at four major companies, Big Pharma companies, that are making hundreds of billions of dollars on the vaccine, that was the first major push against ivermectin in my in my belief. The second is the fact that ivermectin's patent ran out in 1996. So there's no money to be made in ivermectin. I've had lawyers argue on the other side, look, even Merck, who has the most to profit from for ivermectin, is against <laughs> ivermectin. Well, that's just totally wrong. The patent ran out in 1996. No one's profiting from ivermectin. And if there's no profit motive, like there is in remdesivir, um, it gets pushed to the side. That's how strong big pharma is in this country and around the world. So speaking of, about how strong it is, I, I, I was curious if this is going to percolate into some of the court proceedings, some of your legal arguments. This just happened this week. Speaking of Merck, we know why Merck dumped on ivermectin. So they uh, produ- not even produced, but really repurposed along with a partner uh, entity, uh, Molnipiravir. And right. I, I couldn't believe it. I tell everyone they got to watch the FDA advisory committee hearing from Wednesday it was a twelve to uh, thirteen to ten vote, but even the thirteen that voted for it, they all basically said yes, it's mutagenic. Yes, it caused birth defects in the in the in the lab rats. Um, yet the mechanism of action is a nucleotide uh, analog is known to do that, known to cause these problems. The efficacy data is really screwed up. Right a week be- before they uh, um, had the committee hearing, because the second phase came in and almost looks like it's negative. Uh, efficacy. They it, they admitted everything that all of us were warning about, but they're like, yeah, we kind of need to do it anyway because it's like we can't deny people treatment. I couldn't believe what they said. I, is that going to help you at all in some of these arguments? Well, look, what you're saying, just any logical person would look at this and say, look, they bent over backwards to approve something that they know has severe, severe problems and toxicity when ivermectin does it and doesn't have that negative side effect. So yeah, we need something. They desperately need something. But the reality is you and I know we have something and it's just been pushed down so hard that I don't think the FDA is ever going to say that ivermectin is beneficial because there's been so much publicity out there saying it's not. Um, when you peel back the onion, that's really not. If you look at the FDA, if you go to the site, if you look at that picture of a horse 
um, with the woman with the horse and, and the warning, don't take ivermectin. That comes from the veterinary division of the FDA. That really says don't go self-medicate with uh, animal medication. Don't go to tractor supply and buy ivermectin. That's what it really says. Yet the publicity all around it is something else. It's all negativity against ivermectin. When they've actually changed on their website and they've actually said, you know, make sure it's prescribed by a physician if you take medication and they say there's not enough studies for ivermectin. So the FDA, when you really peel back the onion, isn't as critical as all the publicity around it. They have slanted the argument by using the toxicity of animal medication. They slanted the argument like the Rolling Stones magazine article. Totally lies, totally false, but got tons of publicity against ivermectin. Is it my impression, I mean, is my impression correct? What I've noticed is, you started winning a bunch of cases. Then they came out with their nuclear attack in August. You know, the FDA attack, what you're referring to, with the horse dewormer thing that no one ever called it that ever. And suddenly that came out. And then suddenly it looked like you were losing every case. And then now it looks like it's coming back again. Am I, am I getting that right? So here's now. In the beginning, I won the great majority of cases. In fact, in you know, the first several cases I had, I won every single one. Um, there were judges here and there who were pushed into believing that they they can't make medical decisions. And so occasionally we would lose. But where it started to change is when when I won at the beginning, you're winning at a motion practice. And if you win, it's argument, my argument against the the um, hospital's lawyer. And I won the great majority of those and continue to win the great majority of those. But. When you win on those type of motions, the hospital's entitled to a hearing. And so more and more hospitals are asking for the hearing. And what mm. they do is they put up their ICU doctors now. So a judge is sitting there and it all depends who I have. If I have um, a good doctor, Dr. Bain has testified a number of times. If I have a competent you know, doctor who's involved in this, we have good arguments and we've been successful. If I have a telemed person who's just been paid $250 to write a prescription, then I have a much weaker argument. And yes. that's where things started to go bad. Um, but we still have helped dozens and dozens and dozens of people who are home today um, because we have brought these lawsuits. And what can you, I can now you give us a number. Could, could you are you able to give us a number um, of how many cases you won and they administered the ivermectin pursuant to the order and what is the status of those people today in in um every case but one that i can think of well when we administered ivermectin i had a case against mount sinai hospital early on and the woman was 30 days on event before we ever got there and then um, the, actually, the infectious disease hospital, uh, doctor at Mount Sinai was convinced to issue the prescription for ivermectin. He did. It went to the pharmacy. The pharmacy called administration. Administration said no. So I sued it. And the doctor was going to help us, give us an affidavit, but then he backed out. But through the patient portal, the husband got the prescription. We showed it to the court. I was successful. And she got five days worth of ivermectin. That was the protocol back then. Then, again, she was 30 days on event. She was doing better. But then after the five days had worn off, she was still in trouble. And so the protocol changed now to a little bit higher dose yes. and until recovery. I was the first one to have that new protocol. I contacted that doctor. He said he would do it. He did um, in the patient portal when you look at it. He ordered the prescription at the higher dose for 30 days. They gave it to her for five days and stopped. We couldn't believe they stopped. So I was back in court and he testified he only wrote it for five. And I show him the patient portal that says 30. And he stuttered and said, oh, that must be a mistake. I only <laughs> wrote it for five. Well, the truth is the hospital leaned on him. And so even though he ordered it for 30, he wrote a prescription only for five. The judge um, was busy that day. The woman was 54 days already on a vent. I begged the judge to continue to give her ivermectin. The judge says, well, I don't have a prescription. 
will reconvene next Tuesday. Sunday, she died 57 days on a ventilator, 57 mm-hmm. days. But every other case that I've had where we've been able to get ivermectin uh, to a person, um, we've had a success. Now, what I was that 10, 15. Uh, oh, there's 25, 35. 25, 35. So even if it were one person, we're always like, if it saves one life, you know, that's their line. So you're saying every other case, and this one is special circumstances, because, you know, it's the five days is not going to work with everyone, especially at the lower dose, especially on a ventilator. You know, no one's saying nothing's 100%. And even this at a higher dose certainly isn't 100%. If we're 30%, that would be amazing uh, as opposed to zero. But you're saying every other case, that individual is home? I had one case where a person only got it for one day. It's a question of how quickly I can get into uh, into court. Um, sure. But outside of those two people, that 57 days and the person who died after one day. You know, I'm talking about uh, when you got what you wanted. You got what you yeah. wanted and you had the t- ample time. You know, you weren't up against the clock. Those you people know, have survived. Those pe- and, yet and they the are hospital- home. They are home today. So I, I have this fight against these Rochester hospitals, and I talked to the lawyer the other day and say, look, you and I have crossed paths. The first three cases we've had, you know, those people are home. Those people are, you know, they've survived and they're home. How can you still fight with me? And, you know, wow. but she's a lawyer who represents the hospital. And, and she's you know, not happy about that. They want to say those people would have lived anyways, except the reality is the hospitals, especially the the first and second case, the hospitals told the the family to come and say their their goodbyes. Oh, my gosh. Ralph, I know I know you got to go. You got a lot of court cases today and I don't want to take you away from them. But this is there are no innocuous explanations for what you're describing. Um, There's no non dark explanation for what we are seeing um wow that is certainly very informative how could people help your cause well people need to know first of all what i believe is that somebody should not have to hire a lawyer to save their life or to save the life of the loved one so people need to be advocates they need to do their research on their own you just because doctors wear white coats doesn't mean they're always right and a lot of times they're governed by their administration. So people need to have ivermectin at home. They need to get it, put it in their cabinet. If someone gets COVID, they need to take it right away. They need to be informed. They need to go on the FLCCC website and they need to read about these things. This is not going away. You can see it's not going away. And so people need to be prepared. If they need information, they can contact my office and we'll help them as much as we can. I can send them the latest information. That's perfectly fine with me, but be prepared in advance. Going to the hospital is a dangerous thing. Being put on a ventilator is a very dangerous thing. Taking remdesivir is a very dangerous thing. You need to know your alternatives and you need to have an advocate to be there to help you. And you could find, again, it's lorigo.com is your is your it's, website. And, correct. and you don't have any crowdsourcing, I'm assuming? You know, what fundraising you for, for your efforts? Um, look, I think people should donate to the FLCCC. That's what I believe. Mm. Um, you know, if you want to help out, look, Dr. Corey is, is an amazing hero. To me, this man has dedicated the last almost two years of his life to help the world. And, and he has lost people, all his jobs. <laughs> if people have generosity and they want to help this cause, the FLCCC could use your donation. Wow. I mean, that's that's certainly very generous of you basically donating your career um, to something that is not very profitable at all. Um, and that's why so few take it up. But we're thankful for you. Um, may God give you the strength to to do more of these cases and succeed. And then, you know, we need to back this up with legislative action as well. Thanks for your presentation today and keep us updated. All right. Thanks. Take care. Take care. So there you have it. What a terrific man that guy is. You know, I offered him like I did last time to fundraise for his law practice. And he's literally doing this for for charity. Just like some of the doctors like Dr. Henson is treating people 
for free. He is, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he charges, but the point is he doesn't make money off of it. It's just to pay his, you know, all the time he has to spend in court. Um, it's truly unbelievable. You know, he just wants to fund the FLCC, and you can go to their website. I mean, I, I want you guys to send this to all your friends and relatives. This is straight up in court. There is nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide from this reality. This is genocide. That you could have the same lawyer. Okay, you have a first case. Yeah, I don't think ivermectin is going to work. Well, why don't you want to try it? You're trying all this dangerous stuff, and this is well-tolerated. Well, I don't know. I don't want to. Okay, but they won in court. And the first three people in the Rochester hospital system that they won a court case against, they're living at home today because of it. And you can't say they were getting better. That's the new thing of the media now. First, they're like, they're as dead as a doorknob. Ivermectin can't turn them around. And now they're like, oh, well, they're getting better anyway. That, that's the game they're playing. But as, as he said, they, 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 they testified in court that they encouraged the family to take them off life support. And they are home. You'd think you would hang your head in shame. You would be, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm t- uh, look, I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to give this to people on our own now. No, they'll come back to court to make sure that no other person escapes the death trap. Leave no dead man behind. Make sure nobody survives. You tell me the non-dark, innocuous explanation for the behavior we are seeing. These people are doorknobs. The medical profession needs to be burned down and built from scratch. You know, my, my wife uh, just went this morning to, <clears throat> what do you call it, uh, the orthopedist. She fractured, had a minor fracture in her foot six weeks ago. So it's pretty much healed. So this is the six-week mo- six uh, checkup. And she mentioned, because, uh, you know, Dr. Henson, I called him up and he's like, hey, is there anything to do? He's like, yeah, D3, K2, and um, and vitamin A. And K2 is really the most important thing, getting the calcium in your bones. K2 is one of the biggest stars. It, it, it has so many mechanisms. It takes plaque off your teeth. I mean, and, and it's plain English. You could Google it. Bone, it's like K2 and bones. It's like the first page of Google. It's not even hidden. The orthopedist didn't know what K2 was. Never heard of it much less its mechanism of action for bone health. And he's an orthofreganpedist. This is what we have. Anything outside of the silo of the communist healthcare. You think we don't have government-controlled healthcare in this country? It's at least as bad as in Europe. Because like I said, it's with that so-called private sector greed that the government facilitates and takes away the inherent check of a free market on them by boxing out any competition through many clever tactics. So it's really the worst of all. That is the most important thing we need to fight for. So we have this death and mayhem going on in the hospitals, and we can't get a single Republican state. Not one have we succeeded in having a right to try bill in addressing this. But they vote to, to fund Biden's Fourth Reich. Now, we're coming up on an hour here. We're out of time, but, you know, Ralph is right when he said, you got to have medication on hand. That's why I recommend Seven Cells Telehealth. You go to sevencells.com, S-E-V-E-N-C-E-L-L-S. Promo code Daniel at, at the checkout. You get 20% off. You got to order your ivermectin and nitazoxanide today. Um, you got to order it. Don't wait until you have problems. As we're talking, I mentioned I got an email from someone that you know used both ivermectin and nitazoxanide from day one, and he's really happy. Never had his blood oxygen level drop below 100. Never had um, much of a fever. Much of really, you know, much of an issue. It was kind of just you know some some cold like symptoms. And, and again, nothing is 100% perfect for every last person. And as they make this thing more virulent, is very scary. I have an article out today on that. Maybe I'll elaborate a little bit more next week on how Omicron is not the variant that matters. And 
the vaccine is not the solution. Delta is the variant that matters, and and the vaccine is the problem in what aggravated Delta. It turns out Delta would have been like every other variant, except it, the only nuance is it was more prone to ADE enhancement. There's a very prestigious French study out on that, and I have a little bit of a write-up on it. Um, we'll have Dr. Dan Stock on one day next week to talk a little bit more about all of the ways that um, the vaccine enhances the virus. Um, literally a Trojan horse that you have these um, enhancing antibodies rather than neutralizing antibodies. So they don't kill, they bind. So they actually guide, they're almost like the doorman. They guide the the pathogen into the cells. Um which is why you're seeing more infectivity from the shots themselves. Now, for a period of time when they still have the suboptimal antibodies that are also neutralizing, for those few months, the people that do get them, not everyone even gets for a few months, and now and now, even uh, with the boosters, even CDC is down to 2.5 months worth of efficacy, they're saying. So it keeps going down. By the way, I never told you this. Um, there's an Australian document. I have to get a hold of this an Australian document on the animal studies in monkeys with the Pfizer vaccine that they saw waning efficacy after five weeks. But for that period of time, they might get protection from the critical illness, but they are spraying the hell out of you. You could not have come up with something more biblical. Omicron is all unvaccinated people, but it's all very mild. Now, what I'm scared about is Delta appeared to start that way, too. What happens when Omicron, first of all, it's already more, you know, it's obvious we see now more prevalent than, than they claim it was. It's always, you know, by, by the time they discovered or made it, perhaps it was around longer. But when it's exposed to more evolutionary pressure, suboptimal evolutionary pressure, that's kind of like shooting at the king but missing. How is it going to respond? Now, hopefully... Hopefully, it's not as prone to ADE as Delta seemed to be based on the study, and that's I pray to God that's the case. Otherwise, we're screwed. Otherwise, this is going to be a super infection that's going to become increasingly harder to treat. So, um, again, get everything you can now. Uh, follow the protocols. Um, speak to the people that, that know what they're talking about. Keep yourself safe. Keep yourself free and keep yourself informed. Have a terrific weekend. Till next week, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.